Amen. So good to be with you all tonight. And we are continuing our series on Wednesday evenings in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. But if you were here last week or you listened to the message, we're actually going to start with the last couple of verses of chapter 4. Uh, one of the things that we realize when we start studying the Bible is that the Word of God is inspired and infallible, but the chapter divisions and the verse divisions are not, okay? Uh, they were put in at a much later date to the best of one's ability. Before we get into this passage tonight, just a reminder again of sort of the overview of the book. Luke, Dr. Luke is reminding us of a couple key things. The book of Acts is evidence that Jesus keeps his promises. He is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He, the invincible Christ, is marching through the pages of history. And yet, at the same time, as he told his followers, in the world, you will have trouble and suffering, but be of good courage, I have overcome the world. And so, at every turn where the church is advancing and the kingdom of God is making progress, the winds of spiritual resistance are always blowing against God's people. And the same thing is true today. Therefore, you and I cannot get discouraged when the winds of adversity and resistance are blowing against us. We have to keep heading in to the wind and keep taking steps and keep taking ground for God because that's the way of it. That's the plan of God is that the church will continue to make progress in spite of all the forces that are arrayed against it. Now, the other thing that we have seen in the book of Acts is this. The presence now of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers is making a huge difference in every aspect of their life, in the way they look at God, in the way they live their life, and even in the way they look at one another. They are seeing that they have now such a responsibility, not only towards God, but toward one another. You, you can begin to see that the Holy Spirit is creating in them a heart of love and care and concern for one another like they've never had before. And that's why I wanted to start at the end of chapter 4 because we are introduced there to a man by the name of Barnabas. And you see there in the first last couple of verses of chapter 4, verse 34, no one was in need in those days because if they found that one of the believers was in need, they would rally around and they would make sure that that need in some other Christian's life was met. And let's not forget why that was happening a lot because many of them were giving up so much to become followers of Christ. They were giving up social status. They were maybe uh, losing business and all of these different things. Family and friends may be turning their backs on them. And maybe they didn't have, you know, the financial resources and the material and physical resources that they once had. So the early church 
was rallying around one another and caring for one another. And one of them that stood out was a man, verse 36, whose name was Joseph. But notice he was called by the apostles Barnabas because his name means, that name means, son of encouragement. Here was a man who was named by other Christians for what stood out about him. He was always going around encouraging others. And you know, I've shared this before. I've never met a human being yet who said, Jeff, don't stop encouraging me because I don't need any more encouragement for the rest of my life. Everyone needs encouragement continuously. And this man was known as being an encourager. They gave him that name because that's what characterized him. We talked a little bit about this Sunday with David. What stood out about David as a, as a young man that came to the fore? And so I say all that to say this. How would our fellow believers characterize us? What would they say about us? What would stand out about us when it comes to living for the Lord? So notice he sold a field that belonged to him, verse 37, and brought the money and placed it at the apostles' feet so that they would have even more resources to be able to help other believers out with. Now, the reason why I wanted to start with those verses is this then stands in contrast what Barnabas did and how he did it to what we see in chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property, but they kept back for themselves part of the proceeds, and his wife and him were basically in cahoots. Now, it wouldn't have been wrong for them to sell some of the land that they had and kept back part for themselves. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not what was happening here. The only other time this word is used in the Bible, kept back, is actually in the book of Joshua, chapter 7, verse 1, where it speaks about Achan stealing from Jericho and God told him and none of the Israelites to go in and steal anything. It's to be all burned up. And you know what happened to Achan. The same thing is going to happen to Ananias and Sapphira. Basically, they made a promise to give all the proceeds of the sale of their land to the church. But they didn't do that, you see. So what is happening here is there is corruption at play. There is a lack of transparency on their part. There is a lack of genuineness. They're pretending to come before the church and saying, we sold this and now we're giving it all to the church whenever that's not really the case. So notice, through the Holy Spirit, Peter now has a knowledge of something that he would have never had knowledge of before. The Holy Spirit is giving him supernatural knowledge of what's taking place behind the scenes that only God and Ananias and Sapphira would have known. Why? Because God wanted to, as we say, nip it in the bud real early in the church's history here because they're just getting started that corruption will sap the church of its witness and power. 
And God is trying to set a precedent here. Now, obviously, that still doesn't happen today. If every non-transparent, disingenuous Christian just dropped dead, you know, we'd have some sights going around our churches, right? So God isn't necessarily doing that today as dramatically, but the principle still holds true. What God is trying to build into his people is a proper reverence and respect for who he is. And that out of that will come spiritual power and great spiritual witness. So notice, first of all, then in verse 3 of chapter 5, the malevolence of Satan. Satan is taught in the Bible as our spiritual adversary. And he is always trying to undermine the work of God and the progress of God's people. He does that today in your life individually, in my life individually, and he wants to do it in the life of our church. He wants to take every advantage he can to get his foot in the door and begin to bring corruption and and whatever he can to undermine the effectiveness of our ministry and our witness for God. And we have to be aware of that. You'll also notice that Peter uses this phrase, which I think is very telling. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Notice in contrast to the filling of the Spirit that Ananias has allowed Satan to fill his heart. Now, Again, I don't believe that Satan can possess a true believer. But I do believe just as Satan used Peter, that that Satan can begin to work in our thoughts and our hearts and whatever and can use us as his instruments to undermine the work of God. And that's what's going on here. Another thing I want you to see, this also teaches us, if Maybe the best place in the Bible that the Holy Spirit is a person because you can't lie to a force. You can't lie to some just ethereal entity out there, but you can lie to a person. And notice Peter says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Let's never forget that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who lives inside of us, is a person. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all persons, three persons of the Trinity. He tells him exactly what he's done. He has lacked transparency and genuineness, and he sort of embezzled, if you want to say it that way, or just not been upfront about his dealings. And so Peter says, listen, verse 4, before you sold it, did it not belong to you? You could have handled this any way you wanted to, but you and your wife agreed together to make it look like you were going to give it all, and you didn't. How have you thought up this deed in your heart or purposed it in your mind because that's where all sin starts. And that's why the Bible says we've got to guard our heart 
And we've got to guard the way we think. And then notice what he says. You have not lied to people but to God because in, at its core, all sin is against God and the Holy Spirit is God. And so that's made very clear here. He's deity because he said earlier, you've lied to the Holy Spirit and now in verse 4, he says, you lied to God. When Ananias heard these words, verse 5, God basically took him and he died. And notice what happened. The response is that great fear gripped all who heard about it. Great reverence and respect for God. God is saying, look, I want to have a relationship with you. I want you to be able to be comfortable in my presence and to come into my presence. But I want you as my people to never forget, too, who you're dealing with. I'm God. And I am not to be trifled with. And I am not to be tested. And, and I am not to be dismissed. And, and, and I, I am not to be demeaned. You are to hold me up in a proper way. And you are to not only say it, but you are to live it, you see. We have a responsibility before our God. And that's one of the things that the Holy Spirit was creating in the church was the fact that they were being able to start realizing the responsibility they had to each other now as part of the body of Christ and also the responsibility they had to God. And this was not something to mess with. And he was not someone to mess with. I think again, and we'll get a little bit more into this, that we've sort of come too far the other way. And in many churches and in many Christians' lives today, we've gotten too comfortable with God. And there is a lack of respect and reverence for God that I think is proper and fitting for the people of God. How can we expect those who don't know him to have any respect and reverence when we as his own people aren't living in proper reverence and respect for him? Well, notice, after several hours, his wife comes in. Peter confronts her, says the same thing. Did you agree together, verse 9, to test or challenge the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and will carry you out. And at once she collapsed. And when they carried her out, Notice again the response, verse 11. Great fear gripped the whole church and all who heard about these things. I talked about last week how the Holy Spirit is God's divine amplifier that turns everything up, boosts God's signal in our life. And that's why we saw last week in chapter 4 that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we're not just given courage, we're given great courage. We're not just given power, we're given great power through the Holy Spirit. We're not just given grace, we're given great grace. Well, that amplification continues because notice here, it wasn't just fear, it was great fear. There was a renewed reverence and respect for God with his own people. And God needed it to be that way because the seeds of the church were just getting planted. 
And this kind of, of lack of transparency and lack of genuineness and, and just pretension and all that, that, that corruption, that could not be a great foundation for the early church. And it's out of that great worship for God, that great reverence and respect, as I said, that great witness then and great works of God and great wonders of God can be accomplished because spiritual power comes through those who greatly reverence and respect God. So notice what happens in verse 12. Supernatural miracles and signs to authenticate these apostles are done. Wonders that brought people to an awe and wonder. Through the hands of the apostles, God was working in a mighty way, in miraculous ways. And God wants to do the same thing today through his people, but he needs to work through a group of people who properly reverence and respect him. And when we do, oh my, the wonders of God can begin to flow. Notice, by common consent, they were all meeting, verse 12, in Solomon's portico. Now, this might not have any, you know, sort of uh, effect upon us, but just to give us some kind of idea, Solomon's portico was located literally adjacent to the temple. So here you have the temple of God in Jerusalem, and you've got all the Jews going in there, continuing to sacrifice, who did not believe yet in Jesus as their Messiah. And next to it would have been, take our walkway that's covered out here, right? And, and there would have been a walkway that went from the temple to Solomon's portico. And Solomon's portico would have been an area about the size of our field back here. And that's where the Christians met. They met out there in an open area next to the temple of God in Jerusalem. It would have been definitely big enough for a couple thousand people to meet there. But as I said, the whole area was not covered. So the elements, they would have been out in and all of that. But that was their church because they were the church. And look at how God was moving in Solomon's portico. And then notice this. This sort of smacks against many churches today. Verse 13, none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high honor. Isn't that interesting? This is a rebuke to those who treat the church so casually and carelessly. We must take our responsibility seriously when we become part of the church. And notice even back then that people who weren't part of the church yet goes, man, I, I don't know. I, I don't know whether I want to join that group or not because there's some pretty serious things going on there and their God takes things pretty seriously. We've, again, swung the pendulum that now we have churches that we're trying to do just the opposite. We're trying to make things so comfortable for every last human being, and, and, and there's nothing in the church that would be any, in any way like even a little bit 
intimidating, if I could use that word, about joining God's group of worshipers? That wasn't the case with the early church. And notice also, though, what we probably think is counterintuitive. There was great respect. Even if they didn't join the church, notice it says they held them in high honor. It was like, man, these people, there's something special about them. I don't know whether I want to join that yet, but, but I have great respect for who they are and what they're doing. Oh, that we could recapture that today. And I will say this. I, I think that, that that's where you and I, at least at the Oasis and the church that we're responsible for, we need to keep being and keep doing what we're doing. Because there are still people out there that want to join a church like this that takes God seriously, takes his worship seriously, takes his word seriously. And we're not messing around. We're not here for fluff and, and shallowness and superficiality. We're here to get down to business. And there are still people out there, still believers in Jesus Christ. They want to be part of that. Now, there are many others like, nah, that's not for me. And that's fine. That's their choice. But that was the early church. Notice, though, even in this climate where people were dropping dead, verse 14, more and more believers in the Lord were added to their number, crowds of both men and women. See, this paradox often occurs where we might think, oh, if, if we started to be that way or do that, man, we'd shoo people away. Well, but the people that you're going to attract are the people that you want because they really mean business and they understand why they're there. And they're not just there to play church. They're not just there to go through the motions. No, they're there to engage with God and to grow spiritually and to mean business with their God. That's what it was about. And God was working in miraculous ways. Now, obviously, crazy things were happening. Notice it says in verse 15, they were carrying sick out into the streets, putting them on cots and pallets so that when even Peter came by and his shadow was cast and fall on them, they were being healed. Some people have a problem with that. I don't. You know why? Because he's God and he can heal any way he wants to heal. We don't need to put God in a box. If God wants to heal by simply one of his apostles like Peter walking by and casting his shadow on somebody, God can do whatever he wants to do. God simply doesn't want us to limit him in any way because when God begins to work and God begins to do supernatural things and miracles and wonders, look out. There is no limit to what our God can do. And that's why we need to be careful that we're not just comfortable, if you will, with God only working this way because God's going to go, oh, I'll show you, I'm going to do this. And then we've got to reconcile. Are we okay with going with God? Or are we going to shut down and go, nope, that's not for me. I'm, I'm moving on. Now, obviously, as I said, we can see the tremendous growth that's happening in the church. Not just numerical growth, but spiritual growth, right? But here comes the opposition, verse 17. 
The high priest rose up, all those with him, the religious party of the Sadducees. And why were the Sadducees so upset? Because remember, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And what's the early church going around preaching? Jesus rose from the dead. They laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the public jail. Now, we sung a lot about these worship songs that we sung was all about, like, you know, take heart and, and he's going to be there for us and all of this, and, and, and yet it's going to get hard, and yet we've got to just keep trusting the Lord and all of that. Whom shall we fear? So during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison and let them out. Now, before the angel came and was sent by God, you know, what were they thinking? Here we are. We're just being who God wants us to be, and they're locking us up in prison. And sometimes God in his plan and purpose would allow his people to be in prison, but not this time. This time he sends an angel and he opens up the prison doors. My friends, God is still opening up the prison doors. God is still able to open up the prison doors. And not just to open up the doors, but notice it also says, and led them out. Because once the prison doors of our life or anyone's life is open, God then will lead us beyond that. And then notice this. The angel says, verse 20, go and stand in the temple courts and proclaim to the people all the words of, now don't miss this, this life. That's very important. Not just any way of life, this life, this quality of life. Because as I've shared with you before, the words for eternal life in the New Testament do not just speak about uh, a, qual a quantity of life, but a quality of life. And that's what we are seeing in the book of Acts. Everything's changed with these people. The, the people that used to cower in a corner and people like Peter that used to deny the Lord because they were so intimidated and scared and fearful. Now they're stepping up and just teaching Jesus and preaching Jesus no matter what the cost. And you've got the church, you've got these people that cut and run when Jesus was crucified and none of them stayed around. And now all of a sudden, they're standing up to the religious leaders of Israel saying, bring it on. And so they're going back to the temple and they're going to teach the people about this way of life because this way of life is different than any other way of life. It changes everything. It changes, again, the way we look at God and who he is to us. It changes the way we look at each other. It changes the way we look at being part of the church. It changes the, everything about us. It changes the way we look at our spiritual enemy. Everything changes when the Holy Spirit comes into one's life. He gives us new eyeballs to be able to see. So the high priest put him in prison, right? Well, they escape. So when they go back, they want to call them back out, and they're not there. And it says in verse 24, they were greatly puzzled concerning it, wondered what was going on. They were at a loss. Someone came and said, well, look, the men you put in prison, verse 25, they're standing in the temple courts and they're teaching the people. Can you imagine what the religious leaders of Israel thought about that? How'd they get out? And they wanted to do something to them, but it says they feared the people, so 
They didn't. So they did bring them, verse 27, before the council. They questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to teach in his name. And look, you have filled, literally in the Greek, you have flooded Jerusalem with your teaching. I love that. Because you know what? I was sharing with our elders last night. I want to flood Gilbert with our teaching. I want to flood the Phoenix area with our teaching. I want to flood the state of Arizona. I want to flood our country. I want to flood the world. I want to get the word out about our Jesus because he's the answer. And all of us together can flood our area with the witness of Jesus Christ. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. God now, again, is our highest authority. When we were young Jews, you were our highest authority, Sanhedrin, but no longer. Now that we have the Holy Spirit in our lives, our God is the highest authority. We listen to him above everyone else. The God of our forefathers raised up Jesus, whom you seized and killed by hanging him on a tree. God the Father exalted him to his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Do you realize in those two verses, Peter gave the gospel? See, a presentation of the gospel doesn't have to be this long 30-minute presentation. That's the gospel right there in two verses. Very simple, but it's the gospel. He gives all the pertinent information that anybody would ever need to come to know the Lord that Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and now he is the leader, the way for others to follow. He's the savior, the deliverer, and he can give the possibility of repentance not only to Israel for the forgiveness of sins, but anyone who believes in him. And then Peter goes on in verse 32 to say, and we are witnesses. A witness is those who speak from firsthand experiential knowledge. We are witnesses of these events, and so is the Holy Spirit who is corroborating our testimony by working miracles and wonders through us as the apostles of Jesus Christ. When they heard this, obviously, verse 33, they became furious. And then one of their own, Gamaliel, stands up. He tries to reason with the rest of the Sanhedrin. He says in verse 35, men of Israel, we need to proceed with caution. And then in verse 38, he says, let's demonstrate restraint and back off. Because his famous words in verse 38 and 39 are these. If this plan or this undertaking originates with people, it will come to nothing. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop them. Because no one can fight against God and win. God always wins. He is our unstoppable God. And again, the book of Acts is evidence that Jesus Christ keeps his promises, that he is the invincible Messiah, the invincible Lord, who is marching through the pages of history, building his church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail. Oh, are they, are they blowing? Are, are the winds of resistance and opposition blowing against the church, you better believe it, but nothing is stopping it. It keeps on. And you and I have to believe that today. Notice verse 40. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. 
How long do you think that lasted? <laughs> That'd be hopefully like someone, some, uh, you know, politician or authority figure in our area coming into our church saying, you can't teach the word of God anymore. Watch me. Watch me. Because we must obey God rather than men. He is our highest authority. I, I love this. You, you want to talk about a great example. Look at their response to all that they've been through. Oh, by the way, verse 40 also tells us that they had them beaten before they released them. That meant they were given 39 lashes with that whip, a whip that, again, was the same kind of Roman flagrum and whip that Jesus was whipped with. Those men's backs were ripped apart when they left that area that day, bleeding, bruised, beaten. But notice their response. They left the council rejoicing because they had been considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. In other words, they looked at their suffering at the hands of the religious leaders of Israel as an honor that God bestowed upon them. Wow! What an attitude. Again, when the Holy Spirit takes control of your life, you see everything differently, including your own suffering. You look at it now instead of as, as an inconvenience or a, a punishment from God. You look at it as an honor that God bestows upon you to have that kind of privilege to be able to suffer for the name of Jesus. They're so in love with Jesus. They're so obsessed with Jesus that nothing's going to stop them. And they're willing to pay any price to follow their Jesus all the way to the end couple more things wrapping this up tonight notice in verse 42 we learn that their life the early church's life I'm talking about all of them that their life was centered in Jesus each and every day they weren't one day a week Christians they didn't just look at being part of Christ's body as something we do once a week or twice a week no every day both in the temple courts and from house to house, they did not stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus was the Messiah. Every day. God wants to see that in our lives. That our life is centered around our Lord Jesus Christ every day. Now, that might not mean, obviously, we come to the Oasis Church every day. But it does mean that as a follower of Jesus Christ, my life should be centered in Jesus every day. What an amazing church to be a part of. They didn't have any facilities. They didn't have any building. But my goodness, were they making a difference and an impact in their world. Why? because they might not have had any facilities, but they were worshiping Jesus every day. They were witnessing about Jesus every day. 
And the Holy Spirit was doing wonders and working in and through them every day. And people were being drawn to that kind of fellowship. I want to leave you with this thought, though, tonight. I'm studying way ahead. As many of you know, I, I not only study what I'm doing at the moment, but I'm studying ahead. And I came across something today that I just, I just want to share with you that I hope will be an encouragement to you. I, wa I want you to give some thought in closing tonight to the word that we find in the Bible a lot. It's the word foreknowledge. That word really can trip people up and upset people, right? Foreknowledge, oh, what's that mean? Do you know that the word foreknowledge is a love word? It is. It's actually a love word for this reason. I'll say it this way. There are times in our life where we or others, we've heard them say, I wonder if God could ever stop loving me. And the correct answer back to that is this. No, because he never started loving you because he's always loved you. You see, foreknowledge means that God knew everything about us and everything we would do before we were ever brought into the world and brought us into the world wrapped up in his love. So that means there's nothing that we will ever do in our lifetime that, again, somehow catches God off guard and goes, oh, my goodness, I didn't see that beforehand. I can't love you anymore. No, 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 no. Foreknowledge means God has seen it all. And even seeing it all laid out in front of him says to each and every one of us, knowing everything about you and everything that you would ever do, I love you. I want you to take that home with you tonight. That our God, his love for us is so amazing that he knew everything about us, knew everything that we would ever do, and said from the very start, I love you. Because in a sense, his love never really did have a start. It's always been there for us, just as he has always been there for us. May that be an encouragement to you tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight, God, for your servant Luke writing these pages of Scripture for us, Lord, to benefit and be blessed by. Oh, God, what a church that early church was. What a witness, what a worship they had. How you are working in and through them, God. And God, we want the same today because you're the same God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You haven't changed. And so, Lord, I pray that here at the Oasis, we may be a people that are just on fire for you and going after you, God that we are obsessed with our Jesus, that we center our lives in you, Lord, each and every day. And that, God, it's not about all that we have, all the trappings around us that's going to make the difference. It's about our heart that we're learning through our series in David, 
And it's about us, God, having a worship that's dynamic, a witness that's dynamic, and the working that you're doing in us so dynamic, God, that it's drawing people to you. God, may that be true of our church. May you start a revival, God, in and through us. May you flood this area with your word, God, through us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.